Welcome to Daily Wisdom, Walking the Path with the Buddha, a podcast shared by David Roylance. This podcast is dedicated to guiding you to completely eliminate the discontent mind and the suffering it causes by attaining enlightenment. Learn and practice the teachings of Gotama Buddha that will guide you to fully attain a peaceful, calm, serene, and content mind with joy. To support this podcast, visit patreon.com forward slash support Buddha or visit buddhadailywisdom.com where you will discover a full range of courses, retreats, and online learning resources to assist you on the path to enlightenment. Now, here's our teacher to share more. Hello and welcome to Daily Wisdom, Walking the Path with the Buddha. Today is our group learning program where we study the words of the Buddha on Sunday and Wednesday. Today is all about learning loving-kindness meditation. This is something that I taught at the very beginning of the group learning program in a four-part series. But now we're ending to, we're coming to the end of this iteration of the group learning program. And I would like to refresh anybody who's been joining us throughout the last six and a half months and helping you to refresh your understanding to help more develop your practice of loving-kindness meditation. And if you're joining us for the first time, this is great because you'll have an opportunity to learn loving kindness from the very beginning. The way that I typically will teach it as part of this four-part series. We're going to do this in one class where I will share the teachings of loving kindness meditation with you, helping you to understand why we do loving kindness meditation, how we do it, and then I will actually guide you in a loving kindness meditation session by the end of today's class. So I'd like to welcome all of you, whether you're joining us for the first time or you've been joining us regularly, this is an outstanding time to actually join because as I mentioned, you're gonna get to really soak into the teachings of loving kindness and understanding them through the words of the Buddha so that you can see what the Buddha actually taught. Because as I progress and as I share teachings, even with the very beginning student, I always share, don't ever believe anything that I say. Don't ever believe anything that the Buddha says. Don't ever believe anything that you see written in a book. But instead, you learn it, you reflect on it, and you practice it. And by doing so, then you gain wisdom to be able to then make wiser decisions about your practice. So as we progress today, you'll see me using the words of the Buddha. And in those situations, you'll have the truth of exactly what the Buddha taught related to loving kindness and loving kindness meditation. But even still with that, you shouldn't believe those. Instead, you can learn it, you can reflect on it, and then you can practice and see the truth for yourself. And as we go in today's class, you'll be able to ask questions, whether you're in Facebook, YouTube, or Zoom. And the way that you do that is put those into the comment section. Our moderators will see your questions and be able to be sure they get asked during the class. But if you're in Zoom, you can electronically raise your hand asking any questions or follow-up questions directly. So let's go ahead and move right into our class and helping you to start understanding loving-kindness meditation. Last week, I refreshed you guys on breathing mindfulness meditation, helping you to see and understand what breathing mindfulness meditation is, why we do it, and actually how to do it. And this breathing mindfulness meditation was described by the Buddha as a primary form of meditation. It's the way that you eliminate craving, desire, attachment 
Craving, desire, attachment is the cause of all discontentedness. And a major part of this path to enlightenment is to eliminate craving, desire, attachment. So this is one of the reasons why breathing mindfulness meditation takes such a priority in our practice because one of the primary goals of this path to enlightenment is to eliminate craving, desire, attachment. So breathing mindfulness meditation being one of the solutions to eliminate craving, desire, attachment is a priority on the path to enlightenment. The Buddha considered it to be a real priority and therefore you should consider it to be a priority too. This is the form of meditation where we're focused on the breath. We're training the mind to focus solely on the breath and fixate the mind on the breath, which is the present moment. And anytime the mind moves to the past or moves to the future, you cut that off, let it go and come back to the breath. This helps to not only eliminate craving, desire, attachment, but it also helps to cultivate mindfulness or awareness of mind. And it also helps to cultivate right concentration or singleness of mind, bringing the mind into the present moment and allowing it to reside in the present moment. So as we talk about loving kindness meditation towards the middle to end of class, and I guide you in a loving kindness meditation, we're actually going to be doing a bit of breathing mindfulness meditation to lead into loving kindness meditation. So Breathing mindfulness meditation is a real priority and it should be a standalone meditation practice that you do regularly each day. All meditation that you're doing, whether it's breathing mindfulness or loving kindness, you should have a frequency of two to three sessions per day for 30 minutes or longer. This is the way that you would develop your practice and the type of frequency and duration that you're going to need in order to move the mind to enlightenment. You're going to need two or three sessions per day for 30 minutes or longer. And out of those two to three sessions, you might decide to make one of those or two of those or maybe all of them loving kindness meditation. And the way that I teach you, the breathing mindfulness meditation leads into loving kindness. So by doing the loving kindness meditation in the way that I teach, you're actually doing breathing mindfulness meditation and loving kindness meditation. I would suggest that as you progress in your practice that you should have at least one session per day which is solely just breathing mindfulness meditation but depending on what's going on you need to leave your meditation practice fluid and impermanent and adjust it where there might be periods that you need a lot of loving kindness meditation and you should have the freedom and flexibility and the free will choice to be able to choose when to actually do loving kindness meditation. So I'll be teaching you guys how to do loving kindness meditation as we get deeper into our class today. The second form of meditation that the Buddha taught as part of this path to enlightenment is loving kindness meditation. Last week I shared with you the words of the Buddha helping you to see how and why he taught breathing mindfulness meditation. I'm going to be doing the same thing in today's class with loving kindness meditation so that you don't have to believe me that loving kindness meditation was even taught by the Buddha. You actually see his own words so that you'll know that it is absolutely part of the path. Well, what you're doing in loving kindness meditation is you're eliminating anger, hatred, ill will, and all those lesser versions like frustration and irritation and annoyance, right? These are all aspects of the mind that can arise when an unenlightened mind does not obtain the objects of our affection. 
when we have this craving, this desire, this yearning, this longing, this chasing after the objects of our affection, if we get the objects of our affection, then the unenlightened mind is going to experience pleasant feelings conditioned on obtaining this object of your affection. But if you don't get the objects of your affection, then you're going to experience these painful feelings, which include things like anger and hatred and ill will and this sadness and sorrow and grief and things like this. This all arises because of craving, desire, attachment. That's the real cause. But then the mind moves into this anger, hatred, ill will. And this is what motivates unskillful conduct. Our intentions, our speech, and our actions start now being unskillful. And we start causing damage in our relationships through unskillful intention, speech, and actions. So by eliminating anger, hatred, ill will from the mind, then you can be skillful in the way that you interact with people through your intention, speech, and actions. And by not causing harm to others, then that harm won't come back to you. So by eliminating anger, hatred, ill will from the mind, this is very beneficial to the mind because it can remain calm and composed. Then you can have this awareness of mind, this mindfulness. You can have this concentration or singleness of mind. Then you can access wisdom and make wise choices in your day-to-day life. So eliminating anger, hatred, ill will is another major component, another major aspect of this path to enlightenment and is why the Buddha taught loving kindness meditation and considered it to be another priority on this path. He spoke about breathing mindfulness meditation and loving kindness meditation as the two top kind of priorities in terms of meditation. And what we're doing to eliminate the anger, hatred, ill will in loving kindness meditation is we're cultivating loving kindness for all beings. This loving kindness is moving into the mind through our loving kindness meditation session and pushing out this anger, hatred, and ill will. And this gradually occurs over time. It's by moving in and cultivating this loving kindness for all beings that we're moving out the anger, hatred, and ill will. In these other two forms of meditation, we've talked about those at different times briefly here and there. These are specialized meditations that are used in unique situations for individuals that need those. Not everybody is going to need these other forms of meditation like the elimination of sexual cravings and the realization of non-self. While everyone, in order to get to enlightenment, will need to do those things, the meditations aren't necessarily always needed, but breathing mindfulness meditation and loving kindness meditation are needed by everyone because the high level problems in the unenlightened mind is craving, anger, and ignorance or the unknowing of true reality. Breathing mindfulness meditation is helping to antidote and transform the craving desire attachment towards generosity through training the mind to let go, and then also practicing generosity. And then this anger, hatred, ill will is being transformed by loving kindness meditation. And then in our daily life, we're practicing loving kindness through our intention, speech, and actions. And this is what transforms the anger, hatred, ill will, and lesser versions into loving kindness that we're gradually building up and cultivating in the mind through meditation, loving kindness, but then we practice it through daily life in our intention, speech, and actions. And then that ignorance or the unknowing of true reality, that gets transformed by wisdom. 
The way that you gain wisdom is by learning the teachings of the Buddha, not believing them, but you learn them. Then you independently verify them while seeking guidance with the teacher. You independently verify them through reflection and reflecting on the teachings, looking to understand them, observing in the world whether these teachings are actually true or not based on what's being shared. And then you practice the teachings. And then when you move the teachings into practice, this is what really improves the condition of the mind and transforms the mind away from craving anger and ignorance. But you need the wisdom of the Buddha's teachings through learning, reflection, and practice to see the truth for yourself. And when you see that truth, then you have the wisdom and you know what is the truth. And then you'll make wiser and wiser decisions in your life about certain things that are happening in your life. Let's move on to just talking about what loving kindness is in, in general. And more specifically, if you guys have questions, you're welcome to dive into any of these topics more detailed. I kind of teach at a certain level of detail and then allow you guys to ask questions to explore and penetrate into the teachings into more detail as you need that. So now that we're discussing loving kindness meditation and the importance to practice loving kindness in daily life, let's talk about what is loving kindness. Well, loving kindness is an active goodwill towards all beings without judgment. This is where you have a genuine interest in seeing all beings be well and be peaceful. So it's the opposite of ill will, right? And you're not judging others and deciding whether you should practice loving kindness with them. Do they deserve my loving kindness? This would be judgment. If you were judging others and trying to discern or decide, you know, do they deserve my loving kindness? Am I going to give them this genuine interest in being well and be peaceful or not. That would be judgment. That's not what an enlightened being is going to do. An enlightened being is going to practice loving kindness with all beings without judging because an enlightened being understands that unenlightened minds are really struggling in the world. They're having difficulties. And if you base your practice of what you choose to do in the world based on what others are doing or what others aren't doing, then your practice is conditioned on what other people are doing or not doing. Sometimes we're taught to only respect people if they respect you first. Well, if we have that mentality with respect and we have that mentality with loving kindness, then who's the first person that ever decides to have loving kindness or have respect? If we're waiting for other people to have respect for us and they're waiting for us to have respect for them, then we're stuck in this logjam. And it's the same thing with loving kindness. If we're waiting for other people to show us loving kindness before we show them loving kindness, then we're stuck in this logjam. So what an enlightened being is going to do is have loving kindness for all beings, having this genuine interest in seeing all beings be well and be peaceful. It's an active goodwill. It comes through our intentions, our speech, and our actions. And I'm going to show you guys today where the Buddha actually discusses this as part of his teachings and how loving kindness shows up as part of this path to enlightenment. The Eightfold Path is the path to enlightenment. And this teaching of loving kindness integrates into the Eightfold Path. And the Buddha discusses this as part of the overall path to enlightenment. Loving kindness is an antidote to the three poisons. If you think about craving anger and ignorance as three poisons, 
then we think about, well, what are the antidotes to craving anger and ignorance? Well, the antidotes are generosity, loving kindness, and wisdom. These are the antidotes. Another way to think about it is if you think about craving anger and ignorance as the three unwholesome roots, because all unwholesome results, all unwholesome decisions, all unwholesome gamma comes from the three unwholesome roots of craving anger and ignorance. So the three wholesome roots are generosity, loving kindness, and wisdom. So loving kindness is one of the wholesome roots. It's essentially the remedy or the solution to this anger, this hatred, this ill will. And since we're the ones who are harboring these feelings of anger, hatred, and ill will, that's where we actually solve the problem is in our own mind. This helps to eliminate the harshness, the bitterness, the hostility, the resentment, the aggression that comes out of the unenlightened mind when it doesn't get the objects of its affection. This anger, hatred, and ill will, it manifests through our intentions, our speech, and our actions, through aggression, through hostility, through bitterness, through harshness, through resentment. And when we put that out towards others in the world, it just comes back to us. Because if you treat your children with harshness, bitterness, hostility, and resentment, your children are going to treat you the same way. If you have a life partner and you treat that person with harshness, bitterness, hostility, and resentment, then that's what's going to come back to you. If you do this with your parents or your siblings or your coworkers or your boss or your neighbors, your friends, uh, your teachers, people around you, then that's what's going to come back to you because in the unenlightened state, as you are putting out this harshness, this aggressiveness, this bitterness, those beings are going to come back at you with the same thing. An enlightened being experiencing somebody that has harshness, bitterness, hostility, and resentment that are impolite, unkind, unfriendly, and disrespectful, an enlightened being isn't going to be impolite, unkind, unfriendly, disrespectful back. An enlightened being knows that this person is being this way with me, but if I'm that way back with them, it's just going to come back to me. So an enlightened being has trained their mind so well that they have discipline, they have control of the mind, that even when other people around you are being impolite, unkind, unfriendly, and disrespectful, an enlightened being can continue to reside polite, kind, friendly, and respectful. It doesn't mean that you're going to necessarily stay in that situation. You might choose to leave the situation seeing somebody else who is impolite, unkind, unfriendly, and disrespectful. But in a light and being in that situation where there is this disrespect, they're not going to return the disrespect because they know that it's just going to keep coming back to them. It's kind of like a rubber ball. If somebody picks up a rubber ball and they throw the rubber ball and it's bouncing all around the room, eventually it's going to lose its energy and go to the corner and it's going to kind of just sit there and do nothing. But if you pick up that rubber ball and you throw it some more, then it's going to keep bouncing around in the room. And the other person's going to pick up the rubber ball and keep throwing it and it's going to be this back and forth, back and forth. But if somebody is being impolite, unkind, unfriendly to you, They've essentially taken this ball and they've thrown the ball and you just let it be and you just let it lose its energy and roll to the corner of the room, then you're not picking it up and continuing it. 
So by cultivating loving kindness in the mind and then practicing it through your intention, speech, and actions, where you're polite, kind, friendly, and respectful, now the more that you put that out into the world, that's what will come back to you. So it's loving kindness meditation that through practicing this in daily life, we cultivate this in our own mind, and then that's what we put out through our intention, speech, and actions. Sometimes people mistakenly believe or mistakenly understand or have this false perception or this misperception that in loving kindness meditation, you're trying to change other people through your loving kindness meditation. It's almost becomes like a prayer where people are trying to influence change in others through their loving kindness meditation. This isn't what the Buddha taught because it's not possible for you to inject loving kindness into somebody else's mind through your meditation. If that was possible, we would have no murders, we would have no rapes, we would have no prisons, we would have no problems in the world whatsoever because a group of people could get together who are loving and kind, they could meditate and inject that loving kindness into everybody's mind in the world and the world would be utterly peaceful because there would be a collection of beings that would then be able to inject that loving kindness into others. So you're not actually trying to change others through your loving kindness meditation and through your practice of loving kindness. Instead, you're transforming your mind so that this anger, hatred, and ill will can be moved out and through cultivating this loving kindness, this genuine interest in seeing all beings be well and peaceful, now you've transformed your mind. And then by you improving your intention, speech, and actions over a consistent long-term period of time, along with other teachings that are part of this path, then you will start to see that the relationships that you have, people will interact with you in polite, kind, friendly, and respectful ways because you've cultivated your mind, you've developed your mind, but you've also cultivated relationships such that people are reciprocating this loving kindness that you're practicing, for example. Loving kindness is one of the Brahma Viharas, which is shared in this book, Developing a Life Practice, The Path That Leads to Enlightenment, as part of chapter 14. This is the book that we use for this group learning program. So if you would like to read each chapter as we go each Sunday, or you would like to explore loving kindness more, if you've already got this book, you can look at chapter 14 because it's in there. And the way to get a copy of this is you can go to buddhadailywisdom.com and you can download it from there. You'll see a button for free books. And in that same location, there's links to Amazon where if you'd like to get a printed version or a Kindle version, you can get it there. But you can also take the file and go print it yourself if you like, if that's better for you. So one way or another, if you would like to learn and progress on this path to enlightenment, you're going to definitely need a version of this book, either downloaded or a printed version or a Kindle version. And you'll see in chapter 14 that this is where we discuss the Brahma Viharas, and we discuss that as part of this program. And it is helping to inform you of these four mental states that are needed for this path to enlightenment. That's what the Brahma Viharas are, these four healthy mental states of loving kindness, of compassion, of sympathetic joy, and equanimity. And I discuss those in detail when we get to chapter 14. But for now, let me just pause and see if you guys have any questions on anything that I've discussed so far. 
The way that you ask questions is put that into Facebook, YouTube, or Zoom, or you can electronically raise your hand in Zoom and ask any questions or follow-up questions directly. So I'll just turn things over to you guys to check to see what questions you have before we move on further into our class today. Hello, teacher. As for the definition here for love and kindness, you mentioned it's an act of goodwill towards all beings. Perhaps you mean for those who love us, or at least for those whom react by loving kindness when we start loving kindness? I mean, does this include even those whom we do not know, whom we didn't ever meet before? Yes, this is every being every being, even beings you have never met before. So this definition here of loving kindness is helping you to understand in general what loving kindness is, which is this active goodwill towards all beings without judgment, even beings you've never met before. And what we do in meditation is we cultivate this or develop this in the mind. And by doing the cultivation of this in meditation, then you can practice loving kindness in daily life through your intention, speech, and actions, where you're not interested in harming other beings, where your speech has loving kindness, where your actions have loving kindness. And this is what helps to transform the mind. Initially, as you start practicing this way, it can be a real challenge, particularly with people that you have had resentment towards, or you do currently harbor anger and ill will towards. This can be a real struggle, a real challenge for the mind. But that anger, hatred, ill will that the mind is harboring, it's only hurting you, particularly if things happened in the past and you know you haven't seen that person for five years or 10 years or 20 years. If you're harboring anger, hatred, and ill will or any of the lesser versions, it's only harming your own mind. So what this meditation is doing and then also practicing loving kindness in daily life is transforming the mind so that you can let go of that anger, hatred, ill will, and now practice in a way that is infused and the mind is permeating with loving kindness. And this is going to produce the best results for your life because as long as you have anger, hatred, ill will, even if it's just for one person from 20 years ago, but everyone else you practice and try to practice loving kindness with, the mind isn't going to be enlightened because it's still harboring this anger. And we might think that it's just coming out with that one individual or you just have anger towards that one individual, but it's actually going to come out through your intention, speech, and actions with other people as well. So you need to uproot this anger, hatred, ill will, and replace it with loving kindness so that now your intention, speech, and actions can emanate from this active goodwill towards all beings. Well, so intentions, speech, and action. Speech and action, yes, it, it affects our relationship with others, but how can intention affect our relations with others? So what right intention is, this is the second step of the Eightfold Path. It's practicing the intention of renunciation, which means letting go, training the mind to let go. It's also the intention of harmlessness, of not being interested to harm other beings. And then also the intention of non-ill will, not being interested in having ill will, essentially goodwill or loving kindness. So if we have the intention in our mind of practicing these three aspects of right intention of letting go of non-ill will and harmlessness, 
then by having that intention in the mind, then our speech and our actions can emanate from that. Whereas if our intention in our mind, if we're still holding on to anger, hatred, and ill will, even if it's just one person from 20 years ago, then we have this intention in the mind with this anger, hatred, and ill will. The mind is polluted. And with this pollution in the mind, now our speech and our actions are polluted. And by allowing our speech and actions to be polluted, they're unskillful. And now putting out that unskillful conduct, now we start treating other people with hatred, anger, ill will, and these lesser versions. And then that's what ends up coming back to us through our relationships. So everything that we experience in this life is a result of our decisions. This cause and effect, this action and result, the results of our decisions. That's what gamma is or karma is. Oftentimes people think of gamma or karma as this mystical, magical thing or this punishment and rewards. That's actually not what it is at all. It's this cause and effect or action and result, the results of our decisions. So if we decide to harbor anger, hatred, and ill will in the mind as our intentions, then we're deciding that our speech and our actions are going to emanate from this anger, hatred, and ill will. And based on our intention, speech, and actions emanating from this anger, hatred, and ill will, we're putting that out and that's what's going to come back to us. So the reason why you see people that are angry and hostile and aggressive around you is because that's what you've been putting out. So by us transforming the mind and now having this intention of letting go, this intention of practicing non-ill will, which is essentially loving kindness or goodwill, and by practicing the intention of harmlessness, we're making the conscious decision to now practice the intention of loving kindness. And now we inject that and our mind is permeating with that. So we inject that into our speech and our actions. And now when we put that out over a consistent long-term period of time, now we experience people treating us in that same way. But if you've been angry and hostile or frustrated or irritated, annoyed, that means it's like this garden hose that has this mud in there. And the way that you get this mud out is you turn on the fresh water and this fresh water pushes out all this mud out of the garden hose. And as it's pushing out all the mud, it's going to spit some clean water and then it's going to spit some dirty water. It's going to spit some clean water and then some dirty water and dirty water and dirty. And then it's going to spit some clean water. And then eventually when you put enough clean water into this garden hose, it's going to have all pure water coming out the end of the garden hose. So even now when you're learning something like loving kindness and you're learning loving kindness meditation, by you turning on loving kindness meditation and starting to inject into your intention, speech and actions, this loving kindness, you have to do this over a consistent long-term period of time so that you get enough of that pure water, enough of that loving kindness coming into the hose that you burn off and you spit out all of this mud that's in the garden hose so that now you have this pure water coming out. And the more that you do this, now all your relationships will really blossom. Your personal and professional relationships will start to blossom because now you're functioning through loving kindness where before 
the mind was holding on to this anger, hatred, and ill will. And this is why it takes time to transform the mind, first of all, because you need to gradually train the mind towards loving kindness so that you're always practicing loving kindness through your intention, speech, and actions. And then as you're gradually transforming your intention, speech, and actions towards loving kindness, now you start practicing that more and more and more, and it's going to take time to transform your relationships. So if you think that you're going to do loving kindness meditation once and then go outside and all of life is going to be perfect and all your relationships are going to be just perfect, that would be an expectation, an unrealistic expectation. Instead, you need to gradually work the entire path to enlightenment, which loving kindness is a major part of that. But you need to understand the entire path and then keep putting this pure water keep making these wholesome decisions of putting pure water into the hose. And as you do, more and more of the old stuff gets spit out of the garden hose and you'll have more and more pure water coming out. And then your personal and professional relationships will blossom. Well, on Zoom, Jen writes, a uh, thank you, teacher David. Please offer some guidance. I often encounter colleagues at work who express their frustration towards our students. My colleagues complain, describe outrage and judgment. I try to stay out of these discussions and avoid these conversations, but find myself uncomfortable. What can I do with these situations? Yeah, so the reason why the mind's uncomfortable is because of the craving desire attachment. So it's experiencing discontentedness because it's craving for things to be a certain way. It's wanting, it's yearning, it's longing, it's expecting. So you're wanting probably your colleagues to not talk this way about the students. And because the mind is not getting the objects of its affection, that's where it becomes uncomfortable. It experiences those painful feelings, even to a lesser degree of the words that you're using is uncomfortable. So first, you've got to let go of the craving, desire, attachment to wanting things to be a certain way. And then as part of that, you need to practice breathing mindfulness meditation and generosity to train the mind to let go. And then as you're doing that, you're also having this practice of loving kindness to put your colleagues and the students in your meditation practice, not because you're changing them, but you're transforming your mind that you have a genuine interest in seeing them be well. And I would say the choice that you're making of not being around that when they're talking that way is a wise choice. This is what the Buddha calls protecting your contentedness or protecting the doorways to discontentedness. That when you see certain things, when you hear certain things, when you smell, when you taste, when you have bodily contact, when the mind has certain things, these are the six sense bases. When you're getting input through contact with the six sense bases that is agreeable, the mind's going to have these pleasant feelings. And when it's disagreeable, you're going to have these painful feelings. And one of the ways to guard the mind or protect the mind, protect your contentedness, is move the mind away when you experience something disagreeable. This isn't a long-term solution, but this is where we are oftentimes early on in our practice, that it's better to move away from the disagreeable contact and maintain the contentedness. But over time, what you'll ultimately be able to get to with more practice is you'll be able to reside in situations where other people are speaking unkind, 
disrespectful. It won't affect your mind. But you have to let go of that craving first for it to be able to be there. And you might at that point be able to offer some kind advice or some suggestions or some thoughts that can help your colleagues. But right now you've got to stay focused on your own practice, which is if you're experiencing some uncomfortableness, that would be the wrong time to speak because that uncomfortableness is going to come through in your intention, speech and actions, and it's only going to cause harm for you. So your goal in this practice isn't to change your coworkers because their thinking, their thought process, their intention, speech and actions is affecting them. But instead, where you observe that arising of the uncomfortableness, know that that's being caused by your own mind, your own mind's craving, desire, attachment, and you'd like to cut that off and let that go. And part of doing that sometimes as you're early in practice is just to move away from the situation, which is what it sounds like you're doing. And just realize that those people are having their own experience. They're having their own journey. And if they would like to talk bad about the students and have negative views, then that's on them. And your job isn't to fix them or change them. They have to do that themselves. But instead, protect your contentedness. Guard your doorways to discontentedness. And you guard that with mindfulness or awareness of mind. And then when you see the uncomfortableness arising, you cut that off and let it go. Question from Iona. She writes, can you please clarify if it's possible for someone else's anger to affect our own mind? Someone else cannot affect your mind. If someone else is angry and then you get angry too, your anger is being produced by your own craving, desire, attachment. So somebody else can't cause you to be angry. That would be wrong view if we think that way. But with right view, you understand the Four Noble Truths that all unenlightened beings are going to experience discontentedness. The second Noble Truth is that we cause our own discontentedness when the mind is craving for permanence when everything in the world is impermanent. So if you're craving for your friends to be polite, kind, friendly, and respectful, then when they're angry and hostile towards you, you're going to get angry and hostile, but they're not causing it. It's your craving, desire, attachment, wanting this permanence, craving this permanence, yearning and longing for something that's causing your anger. And they're causing their anger too. Sometimes people think that we are causing them to be angry, but that's just because they're practicing wrong view. But you need to practice right view in order to get to enlightenment, which would involve understanding that craving, desire, attachment is the cause of all your discontentedness. And the way to eliminate discontentedness is to eliminate craving, desire, attachment, no longer having these mental longing and strong eagerness. And then it's the eightfold path which is the entire path to helping you transform your mind and train the mind to eliminate craving, desire, attachment, and eliminating all these unwholesome decisions that we make in the world. And by doing that, then we can actually experience improved results in our life. When we practice the Eightfold Path, that's where we experience the true results of this improved condition of mind and the improved condition of our life. As long as we are unknowing of true reality, of things like the Four Noble Truths and the Eightfold Path and 
the five precepts and other things, as long as we have that ignorance and unknowing of true reality, the mind's going to continue to struggle, have difficulties, and experience discontentedness like anger. But because the unenlightened mind, because we are causing our own anger, that's why we can eliminate it because we're the ones who are causing it. So by eliminating craving, desire, attachment, we eliminate the condition that's causing this anger. And loving kindness meditation is a big part of that. But also breathing mindfulness meditation and generosity and many other aspects of this path are a big part of that as well. So that's why we need to learn the whole path in a comprehensive way and practice in a comprehensive way to get the results. But loving kindness being a major component of the path, that's why the Buddha prioritized loving kindness meditation as part of this path and then practicing loving kindness in daily life. And that's what will help us to eliminate our own anger. And just because other people are angry doesn't mean that you need to get angry too. But right now you might be getting angry because there's craving, desire, attachment there because the mind does not yet have the control or the discipline. Once you start practicing more of this path, then you'll start having control and discipline of the mind and you'll be able to restrain the mind and pull it back so that you're not experiencing any kind of anger and as a result of things that are happening around you. On YouTube, a question from Susan, she writes, Dear teacher, I have a few friends searching and how does one see this path is way to relief? I share four noble truths, suffering, etc. Now I know the path and solutions, but how to explain is beyond me. Yeah, I wouldn't put yourself in a situation where you need to explain it to others. There's no requirement for you to go out and convince others that the Four Noble Truths are the truth or that they should practice the full path. If you have that craving, desire, attachment, that's going to only lead to your own discontentedness. Instead, if people are asking you questions, you might choose to share something with them, but you might not decide to because as you're saying, you're not able to. You don't have that skill or that ability. So what you might choose to do is for people who ask you questions is you might choose to direct them to this book, right? You might give them the link to download this book, or you might give them the link to sign up for the group learning program, or you might give them a contact information of your teacher and say, hey, you know, I'm not able to answer your questions, but this person can. This way you're able to practice loving kindness with them by pointing them in the direction to get help but then you're able to stay focused on your path because your mind is not yet fully liberated to enlightenment. That's one of the reasons why you cannot explain the Four Noble Truths, for example, because you're not yet fully wise about these teachings. So therefore the mind isn't fully practicing them. So you're not going to be able to explain them to somebody. And the good news is that you don't have to, you're not required to. There's nothing as part of Buddhism where you go out and try to convert others. This isn't part of this path. This path is all about your journey and your progress. So if other people are interested and ask questions, you can direct them to the resources. If you see somebody that's really frustrated and they haven't asked you about the teachings, but you know that these teachings can help them, instead of pushing or forcing anything about these teachings onto them, you might just ask them, 
would you like some help with that? Or have you ever explored the Buddhist teachings because they can actually really help you with this situation? Or would you like some advice on this situation? Would you like my thoughts on this? Would you like some suggestions? But there you've got to be prepared for a yes and a no answer because people aren't going to permanently say yes. So if you have the expectation that when you ask, would you like some advice on this? and you're expecting or craving or desiring for them to say yes, some people are going to say no. And when you hear no, you're going to get angry because you want them to say yes. So if you're going to ask this question or pose the question of, would you like some advice on that? Or would you like some thoughts on that? Or are you interested in exploring something that can solve this for you? And if they say yes, you're like, okay, well, here's a website, here's a book, here's a teacher. You know, you might share those things with them. But if they say, no, I'm not interested, then you have to remain content and comfortable with that and say, okay, and then just move on and just know that they're making the choice to continue to experience discontentedness. They're making the choice to continue to suffer and you've got to let go and just know that that's their choice. And there's nothing you can do to change that. There's no way to force somebody or pressure somebody to learn and practice the path to enlightenment. They have to step forward and choose to do it on their own. Thank you, teacher. Let's go to Miranda. Yes, sir. On Facebook, Amina asks, if the mind becomes cluttered during meditation, is it best to stop and try again at another time or work to let go of the distraction? You can do either one. Some situations you might apply more effort, continue to work in your meditation, bring the mind back to the breath. In other situations, you might choose to stop, you know, after you've maybe been working at it for 10, 15, 20 minutes. It's really up to you. But if every time there was a distraction, somebody stopped meditating, then people wouldn't ever really, ever really start. Because when you first start meditating, oftentimes there's a lot of distraction. So if everybody stopped as soon as they experienced distractions, they would not actually continue. So within the first 30 seconds to a minute, their mind's distracted. If we gave up right away, then we're not actually making progress. So I suggest that you continue to uh, apply effort and energy to work in your meditation. And then, you know, you're 15, 20 minutes into it and you're just continuing to be bombarded. You might choose to, to stop at that point, but just remember that you're working towards two to three sessions per day, 30 minutes or more. Thank you, sir. Also, you spoke earlier about the importance of maintaining mindfulness so that one can notice these arising of unpleasant feelings, hatred, anger, ill will, or their lesser versions, frustration, irritation, annoyance, so that one can cut them off and let them go. Mm -hmm. But would it be wise afterwards for that practitioner to then focus some loving kindness meditation directly towards the person those feelings were arising towards? Yes, and remember that this including of somebody in your meditation is for you, it's not for them. So if you're experiencing a situation where there's anger, from the other person, you're even noticing some of that or the lesser versions arising in your mind, even if you are able to cut it off and let it go during the situation, as you're mentioning afterwards, it would be really wise to do some loving kindness meditation because the whole reason why the anger was arising to begin with was because there's still craving there. 
there's still anger and there's still ignorance. So even if you were able to control the mind enough in the situation to cut it off and let it go, there's still some there. So you would like to do what the Buddha says, which is obliterated at the stump. So even when you observe that there's even the slightest little bit of irritation arising in the mind, still that keep yourself dedicated to all the steps of the path, which includes loving kindness meditation. You're welcome. No more question for Don Kishore. All right. So let's go into some of the words of the Buddha. So again, that you're not believing me on what the Buddha actually taught, but you can see some of the words of the Buddha as it relates to loving kindness. Now, if you've been studying with me for any length of time or you've been studying other places, you might understand that the fourth noble truth out of the four noble truths is that the eightfold path is the path to enlightenment. A practitioner would need to learn all eight steps, perfect them, practice them on an ongoing, consistent basis for a long-term period in order to get to enlightenment. Well, the Eightfold Path is the central core teaching of the Buddhas, and all the other teachings plug into this in one way or another. And this loving-kindness that we're cultivating in this loving-kindness meditation plugs into the Eightfold Path in different places. And I've pulled out some of the words from the Eightfold Path so that you don't have to believe me that the Buddha taught loving kindness or that it is part of the path to enlightenment, but you can see his actual words for himself. So here's a few places where the Buddha is teaching about loving kindness and how it integrates into the Eightfold Path. The Eightfold Path has these eight steps, right view, right intention, right speech, right action, right livelihood, right effort, right mindfulness, and right concentration. These are the eight steps. And you would need to learn these in detail, which we do in our group learning program. And we're gonna be restarting that program on the 6th of April, where I'm gonna be going through the Eightfold Path in a three-part series and diving deeply into each step. But here, just as a refresher, right intention, that second step, has three aspects to it. The intention of renunciation, the intention of non-ill will, and the intention of harmlessness. This monks is called right intention. And without right intention, you wouldn't be able to build all the other aspects of the path that you need in order to get to enlightenment. So that renunciation is the willingness for the mind to let go. Intention of non-ill will is the same thing as saying the intention of goodwill or the intention of loving kindness. This is where loving kindness plugs into right intention into the Eightfold Path as part of the second step. And that intention of harmlessness, having that genuine interest in seeing all beings be well and be peaceful. So here you can see as part of right intention that loving kindness plugs into that. And then the third step, which is right speech, the Buddha gives some very basic teachings as part of the Eightfold Path in terms of speech. But then there's this other teaching that's called the five factors of well-spoken speech that kind of plugs into right speech as part of the Eightfold Path. And this five factors of well-spoken speech further expands what right speech is because the Buddha teaches in these layers. The Eightfold Path 
in right speech, he talks about not having harsh speech, not having idle chatter, not having frivolous speech, not having gossip, things like this. But then when you explore his teachings further, you can see the five factors of well-spoken speech, which further expands upon right speech to help a practitioner move their practice towards harmlessness where you're not causing harm through your speech. And out of those five factors of well-spoken speech, there's speaking at the right time, what you say is true, speaking gently, speaking beneficially. And the fifth factor is spoken with a mind of loving kindness, is always speaking with a mind of loving kindness. Well, how could you do that? if you have anger, hatred, and ill will in the mind. So cultivating loving kindness and meditation allows you to then practice through your intentions, your speech, and your actions in a way that is infused with loving kindness, this genuine interest in seeing all beings be well. And along the lines of speech, the Buddha also shared some other things as part of his path in helping us to understand that we're not always going to see and experience other people speaking to us in ways that have loving kindness, for example. So you will be in situations where people are going to speak to you harsh and aggressive and disrespectfully. And there's decisions that you need to make about how you're going to handle that. And there's countless ways that you might choose to handle a situation like that. You might just choose to remain quiet. You might choose to walk away. You might choose to change the subject. You might choose any number of different things. But one thing that's very important that you choose not to do is choose to not speak harsh and aggressive back with them. So here in this particular teaching that I've kind of extracted out, it's part of longer teaching, which all of these are. The Buddha says, herein monks, you should train thus. Our minds will remain unaffected and we shall utter no evil words. We shall reside compassionate for their welfare with a mind of loving kindness without inner hate. We shall reside enveloping that person with a mind filled with loving kindness. And starting with him, we shall reside enveloping the all-encompassing world with a mind filled with loving kindness, abundant, joyful, immeasurable, without hostility and without ill will. That is how you should train monks. So here, the, what the Buddha was talking about before this is people that are doing very harmful things to us. And he's saying, even in that situation where people are angry and hostile and aggressive and doing harmful things to us, we should train our minds to remain unaffected, utter no evil words, reside compassionate for their welfare with a mind of loving kindness, without inner hate. Because in situations where other people are hating on you, if you hate back, the hate's just going to keep coming towards you. So you don't eliminate hate by having hate. When people hate you, you continue to practice loving kindness. You continue to practice compassion. It doesn't mean you need to stay in the situation. You can choose to leave. You can choose to remain quiet. You can choose to change the subject. You might even choose if you see this person being aggressive or hostile or impolite, unkind, unfriendly, disrespectful over repeated times, you might choose to actually end the relationship. But you should do that based on 
right view, realizing that any discontentedness that you're experiencing is a result of your craving desire attachment. That if you're choosing to end this relationship and walk away, it's not because you're blaming them for causing your painful feelings. If you did, this would be wrong view. And by pushing them away, that's aversion. This isn't going to solve the problem. If somebody else is angry and hostile and aggressive with us, and we experience anger arising in our mind, and we think pushing this person out of our life is going to solve the problem, this would be wrong view. This would be aversion. Because eventually, you're just going to be pushing people out of your life left and right, backwards, forwards. And eventually, you're going to get to the point where you can't associate with anybody because anybody who's angry and hateful, you just push them out of your life. And it's not solving the actual problem, which is your own anger. And the reason why that anger is arising is because of craving. So if you're addressing craving, you're addressing anger, and you're also addressing this ignorance with wisdom, you can experience situations where people are conducting themselves impolite, unkind, unfriendly, and disrespectful. You've seen that multiple times. You've tried to resolve the problem. It's not resolving the problem, and you might choose to move on and you might choose to end the relationship, but you're doing it while practicing loving kindness in your own mind, that you have interest in seeing this being be well, you have an interest in seeing them be peaceful, but you're choosing to cultivate wholesome relationships for yourself, and that you're not interested in being around hostility and aggression and someone who's maybe disrespectful, but any unpleasant feelings that arise in your own mind you know that that's because of your own cravings. That person isn't causing the discontent feelings to arise. So pushing them out of your life isn't going to solve the problem. That's not going to solve the problem. It might be something that you need to do in order to cultivate wholesome relationships in your life, but it's not something that is going to solve the problem because if we just always pushed everyone out of our life that was angry and hostile, we're still going to experience our own discontentedness because the mind's still craving for permanent peacefulness. So understand the the nuance here that when situations occur that people are being angry and hostile to you, what the Buddha is sharing is remain unaffected. Don't utter any evil words. Reside compassionate for their welfare and have this loving kindness. And the way that you do that is through cultivating loving kindness through meditation. Because anytime you put out any anger or hatred in your intention, speech, and actions, it's only going to come back to you. Some other words from the Buddha related to loving kindness to help you guys understand more of what he was teaching. So again, that you don't have to believe what I'm sharing with you, that the Buddha taught loving kindness or that he taught loving kindness meditation. Here are some other excerpts that I've extracted out of his teaching so that you can see clearly for yourself that the Buddha was indeed teaching loving kindness. And he was indeed teaching loving kindness meditation to antidote this anger, hatred, and ill will. This first line, he's speaking to his son, Rahula. He says, Rahula, develop meditation on loving kindness. For when you develop meditation on loving kindness, any ill will will be abandoned. So this is how he's teaching to eliminate anger, hatred, and ill will through developing loving kindness meditation. 
when you develop the mind and cultivate the mind through loving kindness meditation, now you can practice through your intention, speech, and actions this loving kindness, and that is what will abandon or eliminate this anger, hatred, and ill will. And then he, he says it very plainly in this next sentence where he says, loving kindness should be developed to abandon ill will. Just very straightforward. This is how a Buddha teaches. Very clear, very precise, very concise, right? This is why we don't need to interpret the Buddha's teachings because he said it very clearly. All we need to do is look at the words of the Buddha, learn those, reflect on them, and practice them because he said it very clearly. Loving kindness should be developed to abandon ill will. Very clear and straightforward. And then here's another one. He says, suppose they ask, but what, friends, is the reason unarisen anger does not arise and arisen anger is abandoned? So this is a question. He says, suppose... Here he's actually talking to his ordained practitioners and he's saying, you know, if other people should ask you what is the way that unarisen anger does not arise and you can abandon arisen anger. If people should ask you this question, here's the answer. He says you should answer the liberation of mind by loving kindness. For one who attends carefully to the liberation of mind by loving kindness, unarisen anger does not arise, and arisen anger is abandoned. This, friends, is the reason unarisen anger does not arise, and arisen anger is abandoned. So if you're, during your day, fairly peaceful, fairly content, then by cultivating and practicing loving kindness, the Buddha is saying, unarisen anger does not arise. It won't arise because you've cultivated loving kindness in the mind really well and you're practicing loving kindness in daily life. So therefore, you're not going to have this arising of, of anger. But then he also says, when anger does arise, then the way to abandon it and let it go is to practice loving kindness. So you would need to practice loving kindness meditation so that you can practice loving kindness in daily life. And when you do this enough and you spit out all this mud out of the garden hose, then loving kindness should be developed to abandon ill will. So it's completely eliminated from the mind. And when you eliminate the conditions of anger, hatred, and ill will, then it will never arise in the mind. But because you're on the path, you're transforming the mind, there is still anger, hatred, and ill will in the mind. And there's lesser versions of it. You're still experiencing that because the mind is not yet enlightened. As you move forward on this path and you eliminate the fetter or the taint or the pollution of mind described in the 10 fetters as ill will, when you remove that from the mind, then you will no longer experience any anger, hatred, and ill will. It won't even arise in the mind, even these lesser versions. But you don't get to that point until you're in the third stage of enlightenment. Even in the first and second stage of enlightenment, there's still some ill will that's in the mind. And you're going to experience this arising occasionally. It's not going to be the rage. It's not going to be the fierce, intense anger. It's just going to be like this annoyance, this uncomfortableness, this frustration, this kind of ickiness, this irritation, because maybe you've reduced the ill will in the mind, but it's still there. It's not until you get to the third stage of enlightenment 
that ill will is completely eliminated from the mind and you will no longer experience anger, hatred, ill will, or the lesser versions from that point forward. So let me pause here and see what questions you guys have around the words of the Buddha related to loving kindness. And keep in mind that he shared a lot of other teachings related to loving kindness as well. These are just some extracts that I've pulled out just to kind of summarize this for you to help you understand what he taught and to kind of refresh you about loving kindness and why we're actually practicing loving kindness meditation. Because after we open up to any questions that you guys have here, I'm going to teach you loving kindness meditation, and then we're going to actually do it together as a class. Wait, so uh, sometimes after uh, a discussion between someone and me uh, ends, I reflect on what happened, thinking that, oh, it would have been better if I talked to him or her in a different way. That way would be more helpful for him or her. Is this a, a kind of practicing loving kindness towards other, or it's a craving to help everyone or to speak in the, the same way every time? It can be either or. It depends on what's going on in the mind. So it's very helpful. It's very wise to reflect on conversations that you've had and reflect. Did I say that in the best way? Was there a better way that I could have said it? What could I have done differently? Whether the conversation went good or whether it went bad, it's wise to reflect. You know, of course, if the conversation went bad, reflect on what you can do to improve, particularly through those five factors of well-spoken speech. But even when conversations go really well, that's a really good time to reflect and be like, why is it that that conversation went well? Because then you start observing the things that are happening in your practice that resulted in a wholesome outcome of the conversation. So you can do that with a peaceful mind, with a content mind where you do this inner reflection and you're just observing what transpired in the conversation and then you're aiming and you're aspiring to improve and make it better. Even if you went really well, what could you have done better? So you can do that from a healthy mental state without craving. But if you observe and you look at your past conversations and you start beating yourself up, you start degrading yourself, you start feeling down, you start feeling guilty and shameful and fearful, this is because of craving desire attachment. This is where the mind's craving, longing and yearning for things to be perfect and you're not perfect yet, so therefore the mind is becoming discontent, experiencing guilt or shame or fear or anger or frustration. So if you're gonna look back at conversations, do that from a healthy mental state where you're reflecting and you're looking to improve and you realize that it's a journey and that you need to improve. And then where you see areas to improve, just be like, all right, great, I'm glad I found those golden nuggets. Rather than sit there and kind of degrade yourself and think about all the reasons why you're so bad or you're so wrong or you did this wrong or you did that wrong, that's where the mind has this kind of downward spiral. So those five factors of well-spoken speech, not only do we need to speak to others that way, but we need to cultivate that inner mind, that self-talk, where we speak to ourselves and we reflect, we need to have that same thing for ourselves, where we speak at the right time, what we say is true, we speak gentle, we speak beneficially, and we speak with a mind of loving kindness. So if you're gonna look back at areas of conversations that didn't go so well, be sure to have loving kindness for yourself and realize you're a work in progress. And then when you see conversations that went well and they went good, same thing, have loving kindness for yourself, 
Don't allow arrogance and pride to come in like, wow, look at me. I know these Buddhist teachings so well. I can have so many great conversations and everybody, you know, does exactly what I say. And, you know, I'm, I'm such a master of these teachings. Don't think that way. So even when you see that things went well, think about how can I even improve better beyond that and do that from a healthy mind state without craving desire attachment. Thanks, teacher. Let's go to Miranda. Yes, sir. On Facebook, Pangal Kenny Moyodoy asks, could anger come from five elements like air we breathe, food we eat, other than our mind? No, anger doesn't come from anything external. Anger is always being produced by craving, desire, attachment. This is part of the Four Noble Truths. You can download this book or you can get a printed copy of it. In chapter four, it explains the Four Noble Truths. And if you're going to attend these classes on Sunday, the 10th of April, I'm going to be teaching the Four Noble Truths as part of this program so that you can learn that it's craving, desire, attachment that's always causing any kind of anger that's arising in the mind, not just anger, but any discontent feelings whatsoever. Nothing external can cause the mind to be angry. Someone who thinks that way or believes that they're practicing wrong view. They're not seeing the truth that the mind is causing itself anger. For example, it's craving desire attachment, this mental longing with a strong eagerness, wanting things to be a certain way. So if you take the last situation that you were angry at, think about the last situation that you were angry at. And now as you think about that situation, what was it that the mind was longing for? What was it yearning for? What was the object of its affection? It was craving something. It was desiring something. And when it didn't get the objects of its affection, it experienced anger. So if you look at your own life and your own situations, you should be able to see every single time that anger arises in the mind, it's coming from your own craving, desire, attachment. And you're going to need to see that very, very clearly to be able to break through and understand the Four Noble Truths and break through and establish right view. Because if you don't establish right view, you're not going to be able to build all the other steps of the Eightfold Path. So it's vitally important that you take some time to understand right view, which is part of chapter four. It's part of the Four Noble Truths. And what I share in this book, if you haven't read it before, then you haven't perhaps explored these teachings in the way that I share them. So it would be very wise for you to take your time to look through that. And then as you have questions, you can post those into the Facebook group. You can ask questions in the online classes. You can send me a private message or you can schedule a personal guidance session to be sure that you get this breakthrough so that you can see very clearly that it's always craving desire attachment that's causing discontentedness in the mind. Thank you, sir. You're welcome. Well, no more question for now, teacher. All right. So let's look at how to actually do loving kindness meditation because I'm going to guide you guys in loving kindness meditation today and let me teach it to you first and then we'll actually do it as a group. So the way that I do all meditation is I start with a chant and I teach chanting and help you understand why I'm doing that. It, there's no mystical, magical thing that's happening with the words of chants. This would be wrong view if somebody thought that way. 
the chanting that I do is just to ease the mind into meditation so that you get more benefit out of the meditation itself. So the chanting is to arise mindfulness, to arise concentration, to bring the mind into the present moment, start becoming aware of the breath and ease the mind into meditation. Then we're going to do breathing mindfulness meditation for a period of time, maybe five or 10 minutes. We'll do breathing mindfulness meditation where we're just focused on the breath. Anytime the mind moves off the breath, you're going to cut that off and let it go and come back to the breath. And I'm going to guide you in that as part of the meditation. And then after I guide you in breathing mindfulness meditation, we'll go through a period of time where I'll just be quiet and let you actually do the work of breathing mindfulness meditation. But then I'm going to come back in with some guidance on loving kindness meditation. And the guidance that I'm going to be providing are these statements. These are affirmations that you're repeating in the mind on the out breath. And the affirmation is going to be, may I be peaceful. You're going to repeat this in the mind. You're going to hear me say it out loud. And wherever you get to your next out breath, you just repeat, may I be peaceful in the mind. And then I'm going to breathe in. And then on the out breath, I'm going to say, may I be safe. Your out breath is going to be different than mine. So wherever you get to your next out breath, you repeat in the mind the affirmation, may I be safe. And then when we get to the next one, it's going to be, may I be well. And then may I be free of all discontentedness and the suffering it causes. So there's these four affirmations. And you're starting with I, because you can't cultivate loving kindness for others if you don't have it for yourself first. The way to think about this is that if you're poor, how could you teach others to be rich? So what you need to do in order to have loving kindness for others is you need to have loving kindness first so that you can have loving kindness for this being who you are right now, whether it's Jan or Iona or Manal or Chris, whoever this being is that you are now, you need to cultivate loving kindness for this being first. And then once we go through those four affirmations, cultivating loving kindness for ourselves, then we're going to expand to the next ring. And today I'm just going to keep it really simple. I'm going to say, may we be peaceful. And we'll do that next affirmation. And on your out breath, you will say, may we be peaceful. That's we meaning the people who we're meditating with, right? The people who are with us today meditating. And then may we be safe, may we be well, may we be free of all discontentedness in the suffering it causes. This is training the mind to cultivate loving kindness for the beings around you. And then I'm going to go to this third one, which is may all beings be peaceful, be safe, well, and free of discontentedness. This is just a very simple, very basic meditation that applies to all of us. And then after the loving kindness meditation, we'll go back to breathing mindfulness meditation for a period of time, focusing on the breath, and I'll guide you guys on that. And then we'll come out with some chanting. When you do loving kindness meditation on your own, you're not necessarily going to use just these three rings. You're going to customize this meditation based on your needs. So if you have anger towards your life partner or your children or your parents or your coworkers or your boss, or your friends or anybody that you have anger, hatred, ill will towards, you would like to include them in your meditation. So you might start out with, may I be peaceful, do those four affirmations. 
You might then move to people who you do have loving kindness for. Maybe your mom or your dad or other people who you already have loving kindness towards. And you might put them in your next couple of rings. Then you might go to people who you're kind of more neutral towards. Maybe some of your friends or coworkers. And then you might get to kind of the outer layered rings, which are people who you tend to have more difficulty having loving kindness and compassion for. And remember, you're not trying to change these people. You're trying to influence your mind through these affirmations. You're transforming your own anger, hatred, and ill will. So that now when you're around your mom and dad, you're functioning through your intention, speech, and actions with loving kindness, this genuine interest in seeing them be well and be peaceful. When you're around your coworkers and your siblings, you're functioning through loving kindness because you've cultivated it in meditation or those people who you have anger or resentment towards right now. Now, by including them in your meditation, when you're around them, your intention, speech, and actions can emanate from loving kindness. They might still be angry. They might still be irritated. They might still be resentful. They might still be hostile and aggressive, but you're choosing to not do that. You're making a conscious choice through your decision to practice loving kindness. And that's where you'll transform your mind and you'll transform your relationships. But certain relationships, as we said, you might need to just move on from because you've tried what you've tried. The person might not be willing or interested to improve. And by practicing loving kindness for this being, you know that you need to cultivate wholesome relationships and you might just choose to move on. And that's a wise choice for you. And that's okay. But at least you understand what the cause of the problems are that you're experiencing in your mind, which is this craving, anger, and ignorance. And loving kindness is going to help us transform that. So when you do loving kindness meditation on your own, be sure to include beings that you're trying to cultivate loving kindness for, and you're trying to maintain that, people who you already have loving kindness for, and people who you're maybe more neutral about, and also maybe people who you already have anger, hatred, ill will towards, and you're trying to cultivate that and transform that. If you're somebody who has a challenge with having loving kindness and compassion for your own self, you might actually start out when you first initiate this practice for a few weeks or maybe a few months, just doing loving kindness for yourself. Maybe you have three, four, five rings. May I be peaceful. May I be peaceful. May I be right over and over and over again, where you're doing these four affirmations over and over and over for yourself. And then you would like your last ring to be all beings. And then once you start realizing that you're starting to talk to yourself more kind, more polite, more respectfully, now you might start including some other people into your meditation. And maybe you just do yourself once and then you add some rings for mom or dad or brothers and sisters and friends and colleagues and life partners and children and things like this. But you would like that last ring to be all beings. You're not interested in leaving anyone out not just human beings, but animals and all beings. So you would like to ensure that there isn't anyone that you've left out because you need to cultivate loving kindness for all beings. And that last ring is a really nice ring to ensure that you're including all beings. And notice that these affirmations that we're doing, we're not trying to convince other people to be peaceful. 
We're not trying to convince others to be safe, to be well, or be free of discontentedness. This is our own mind having this genuine interest in seeing them be peaceful and seeing them be safe and seeing them be well and seeing them be free of discontentedness. We can't accomplish that. They have to do that for themselves. We're not trying to change them through our meditation. We're changing our own mind so that now when we're around them, we interact in a more loving and kind way. So do you guys have any questions on how we're going to do our meditation today? Yes, teacher. On uh, YouTube, a question from uh, Tricia. She writes, Hi, David. I was wondering, do the chants that you teach, does it change? Or is there a reason you only teach those specific chants? Do these chants cover what we need to know to help the mind for medication? So chanting is not required in order to get to enlightenment. This is why the Buddha doesn't have it on the Eightfold Path. There's no step on the Eightfold Path that is right chanting. So nobody's required to chant. There's people who are enlightened that don't chant. There's no mystical, magical thing about chanting. What I do with chanting is I do it in order to set up mindfulness in front of me because this is the Buddha's guidance on meditation, that we should set up mindfulness in front of us. And I use chanting as a way to do that. I do other things too, like I'll go to the bathroom, I'll empty the organs, get the body nice and comfortable, start kind of bringing the mind into the present moment, start chanting. This helps to set up mindfulness in front of us or awareness of mind. And you can do the three chants that I do. You can do one, you can do two, you can do all three. These are the three that I use. But there's nothing special or mystical or magical about those specific chants. It's just the three most common chants that you'll see here in Thailand that are chanted. And I talk about the translations of those. In chapter 11, I have the translations for what those chants mean because they're in the Pali language. And it's, it's helpful to know what the translations are. But if somebody isn't interested in doing chanting or learning chanting, then you don't have to do it in order to attain enlightenment. But you would need to set up mindfulness in front of you before meditating. If you just came in and plopped down and started meditating, you're not going to have the same results as if you practice what the Buddha taught, which is setting up mindfulness in front of you or this awareness of mind. So each person might choose to do something different. And there's no hard, fast requirement of exactly what to do to set up mindfulness in front of you. If you understand what mindfulness is, which is awareness of mind very generally, but more specifically the four foundations of mindfulness, then when you start your meditations, you should be setting up mindfulness before you meditate. So you're easing the mind into meditation. So that's what I do is I use chanting, but somebody wouldn't be required to do that in order to experience enlightenment. But they could if they would like to try it and observe the benefits of having done so. Teresia also writes, should one choose to learn other chants or there is no need to learn many chants? It's up to each individual. There's some people who have a practice of chanting a lot, particularly ordained practitioners. They tend to spend a lot of time learning how to chant. Household practitioners, not as much. You're not required to learn a whole lot of chants. You're not required to learn any chants at all in order to attain enlightenment. That's why it's not part of the Eightfold Path. So it's a personal choice for you. Thanks, teacher. Mm, yes, there's a question on Zoom. Chris writes, 
I'm still having some trouble understanding. Does it matter if we chant in Pali or our primary language? There's no difference between chanting in Pali or chanting in English because the words themselves isn't what's actually creating the benefits of the chant. Oftentimes people are taught that the chanting itself, the words are like a prayer, but that's not what the chanting is. The chanting was used during the lifetime of the Buddha as a way to memorize the teachings because he taught an oral tradition. He had people chant in order to memorize his teachings word for word for word and commit them to memory. Nowadays we chant and people have lost the understanding of the Pali in some cases and they think that the words have these mystical magical powers but there's no mystical magical power here it's not a prayer instead the way that i teach chanting and i don't think you've taken the four-part series that i teach with chanting which you might be interested to go look at chris on youtube there's a playlist for the class where i taught chanting and i explained very clearly what chanting is and what it isn't. It's not a mystical, magical thing. The words of Pali or English, it's not going to make a difference. What I use chanting for and what I have used it for is cultivating mindfulness, cultivating concentration, cultivating awareness of breath, easing the mind in the meditation. And you'll see some other things that I teach as part of the chanting class of why I choose to chant. But not everybody's going to need to chant in order to attain enlightenment. These are just things that some people practice, but they're not required. I suggest you don't get hung up on the words because the words actually don't matter. You could actually just sit down for meditation and you could hum. You could just hum some something. And that could be a way for you to develop awareness of mind and start focusing on the breath. It doesn't really matter. But if you're going to like to chant, and if you would chant, then I share the Pali chants as a way to learn chanting. And I teach you as part of that four-part series how I use chanting in order to cultivate the mind. But it's not the language or the words that are actually producing the benefits. Well, no more questions for them. Okay, so let's go ahead and do a loving kindness meditation session together. And remember, we're going to start out with chanting. And if you've learned these chants, you can chant along. If you haven't learned these chants, no worries. Then you don't need to actually chant. Go ahead and take your position. Usually we teach in the seated position, but you can also do loving kindness meditation in the lying position and in the standing position as well. You would like the lower body to be comfortable, like I taught last week. Have the lower body, if you're sitting on the floor, maybe cross legs very lightly so that you keep the circulation. You might put some cushions under your rear to get your rear up in the air. That lessens the angle at the hips, the knees, and the ankles. If you're in a chair, your feet might be flat on the floor or your ankles might be crossed. This isn't about everybody doing it exactly the same way. It's about finding what's comfortable for you. You're not interested in the body being luxurious. You're also not interested in the body being painful. So find a position where the lower body is comfortable, not luxurious and not painful. The hands and arms should be comfortable and relaxed in the lap. The Buddha put his right hand over his left with his thumbs together, and then he put that into his lap. If that's comfortable for you, wonderful, do that. But if that's not comfortable, you might choose to put your palms on your thighs, your knees, your arms on the armrest of a chair, up to you. 
By the time you set up the body, the lower body, the hands and arms should be completely relaxed and comfortable, not luxurious and not painful. It's almost like they don't even exist. There shouldn't be any engagement of the muscles in the lower body or the hands and the arms. Your upper body is different though. You would like that to be nice and erect. You would like that to be straight, not real rigid and not slouched either, but in the middle. By keeping the upper body erect, this maintains the attentiveness and the alertness of the mind because our meditation is a dedicated, active, purposeful training session where we're actively training the mind. So we need the mind to be attentive and alert during the meditation. Meditation isn't a time to zone out. It's not a time to observe your thoughts. It's not a time to judge your thoughts or label your thoughts. We're doing real work in our meditation and we need the mind to be attentive and alert. And the way that you accomplish that is by keeping the upper body erect or straight. And this maintains the alertness and the attentiveness of the mind. Next, you would like to just close the eyes and start breathing in through the nose and out through the nose. Just start breathing in through the nose, a nice, gradual, steady breath. Breathing in, experiencing the full breath, and breathing out, experiencing the full exhale. Breathing in, in out today i'm not going to do chanting easing into meditation i'm just going to guide you as this refresher or for some people that are just starting out learning with me we're just going to go right into breathing mindfulness meditation so just keep breathing in through the nose and out through the nose You breathe at your pace. Your breath isn't going to necessarily sync up to the guidance that I'm sharing. Breathe in through the nose, wherever you get to that next in-breath. This is your journey. You breathe at your pace. And then wherever you get to the exhale, breathe out through the nose. Breathing in and out. Start bringing the awareness of the mind to the breath. Fixate the mind on the sound of the breath coming into the nose or the sensation of air moving over the skin into the nose. This is the present moment. Fixate the mind on the breath, the present moment. Breathing in and out. Breathing in. and out. Whenever the mind moves off the breath, 
cut that off and let it go. Whether the mind goes to the past or the future, if there's any thoughts, ideas, or perceptions that come up in the mind, cut those off, let them go, and come back to the breath. No need to judge the thoughts, no need to analyze them, no need to observe them, no need to label them. Just wherever you observe that the mind is off the breath, cut that off, let it go, and come back to the breath. Breathing in. And out. Breathing in. In out. When the mind moves off the breath, you haven't done anything wrong. This is just the mind being untrained. Continue to focus on the breath, and wherever you observe that the mind is not on the breath, cut that off, let it go, and come back to the breath, the present moment. I'm going to be quiet now and let you do this work. And then I'll be back with guidance on loving-kindness meditation. Breathing in. In, out. You have nowhere to go. There's nothing to do. No one needs you right now. This is your time to focus on the breath. Breathing in and out.
continuing to focus on the breath, breathing in and out. On the out breath, repeat this affirmation in the mind. May I be peaceful. May I be safe. May I be free of all discontentedness and the suffering it causes. peaceful. May we be safe. discontentedness in the suffering it causes. beings be peaceful. May they be safe.
may they be well. May they be free of all discontentedness and the suffering it causes. Now let's go back to breathing mindfulness meditation. Focusing on the breath, breathing in through the nose and out through the nose. Whenever the mind is off the breath, cut that off, let it go and come back to the breath, the present moment. Breathing in and out.
meditation so here this was just a real simple real brief meditation just to kind of help you get familiar with the structure of loving kindness meditation remember there's that breathing mindfulness meditation to lead in there's the actual rings and you would like to customize those you can do five rings six rings eight rings however many you'd like including people in your life that you have loving kindness for and you would like to cultivate that and continue to support that, encourage it, not allow it to fade. For people that maybe you're more neutral about and you would like to cultivate more loving kindness for them. And then people that you have challenges with and that you currently have anger, hatred, and ill will towards or maybe some resentment towards and you would like to eradicate that from your mind. Be sure to include them in your meditation as well. And we're always starting with may I, and then you're finishing with all beings. 
And there's different ways that you can structure this. And I gave some examples in chapter 11 about ways that you can structure this. And as you work with this slowly but surely, it transforms the mind away from anger, hatred, ill will towards loving kindness. So I'll open up to any questions you guys might have as we come to the close of our class to see if there's any questions you guys have about loving kindness meditation or anything that we taught today. And then depending on what questions you guys might have, if we've covered those and you've got other questions, we can also go into other questions about any aspect of this path at all. You can just put those into Facebook, YouTube, or Zoom, or raise your hand electronically in Zoom and ask any questions that you like. So let's go to Miranda. Yes, sir. On Facebook, Kaylee asks, when feeling sick like I do today with the flu, can I miss meditation and just relax? Yeah, there's no harm in that. You know, you're not interested in that turning into, you know, three weeks or three months of not meditating. But if you miss a few days here and there because you're just not feeling it, then that's fine. There was a time about two years ago where I got in a motorbike accident and I couldn't meditate for about a week and a half because I had a broken rib or a cracked rib or a fractured rib. And it was really hard to breathe. And, and then even when I started meditating again, I wasn't able to chant because I couldn't get the full breath into the lungs. So if you go, you know, a few days here and there without meditating when you're sick, that's fine. This actually can help the mind as well to ensure that there's not a craving desire attachment to meditation. If we have craving desire attachment to meditation, then the mind's going to be discontent when we can't meditate. And we can't permanently meditate every single day of our life. That would be permanence. So we understand the universal truth of impermanence. And when the mind is craving, desiring, attached, wanting things to be permanent, that's when we cause our own discontentedness. Even for something wholesome, something as wholesome as meditation, the mind can be attached to it and crave it, wanting it to be permanent. And a situation like this, where you maybe go a couple of days without meditating, this can be really helpful to train the mind about the impermanence of meditation. And then when you're ready, get right back into it. Don't allow that to become, you know, multiple, multiple weeks or months of not meditating. That wouldn't be helpful. Thank you, sir. She also goes on to say the nose is totally blocked. And that brought up a question in the mind. Uh, this being has an allergy to dust mites, and there are times where the nose is just very, very stuffy. So to meditate during those times, would it be okay to breathe through the mouth as opposed to breathing through the nose? Yes. A few things that I can recommend there is, is one, you know, in the moment, if you can't breathe in through the nose, then yes, you know, you can breathe in through the mouth. And I would suggest using the surface of the lip where the air is coming in and out as the point where you fixate the mind because normally you're going to fixate it on the sound coming in through the nose or the sensation of air if there's not a sound that you've got coming in through the mouth that you can focus the mind there if not focus on the sensation of air moving over the lips and that's where you fixate the mind but another option 
is that you can also use uh, nasal rinse because I have a lot of challenges with sinuses as well. And I use this salt water rinse to rinse out the nose regularly. And this helps to keep the nose clear. So if you're kind of more proactive with it, maintaining the clarity of your sinuses, then this can be really, really helpful. And nowadays they also have air filters that you can put into rooms like HEPA filters and filter out the air. So between the nasal rinse, the air filters, you might be able to keep your nose open quite a bit but even still there's going to be situations like maybe you're experiencing now where there's congestion from a sickness in the body and you just can't breathe in through the nose and that's an ideal time to work on this other skill which is breathing in through the mouth and this is why we do these things is that we understand that there's impermanence in the world and we're not going to be able to permanently breathe through our nose because of the congestion so by cultivating this other ability then you'll be able to have that as a backup plan whenever you can't breathe in through the nose. Thank you, sir. You're welcome. Thanks, Richard. Seems that this is all for today. All right. Well, this was just a little recap and refresher for you guys to help you better understand and remember what I taught as part of those four-part series of loving-kindness meditation. Last week, we covered breathing mindfulness meditation. This week, we did loving kindness meditation. And when we restart the group learning program, I'll be doing that again. So in April, we'll be doing a four-part series on breathing mindfulness meditation. And then in May, we'll be doing a four-part series on loving kindness meditation to gradually build up new students with these two very important methods and styles and techniques of meditation, because these are the two that a practitioner is going to need to get to enlightenment. While there may be hundreds and thousands of different meditations that people have invented and started after the lifetime of the Buddha, the Buddha really prioritized these two. He taught about four different meditations during his lifetime, but it was these two that everybody needed because of that craving, anger, and ignorance in the mind. He focused people on breathing mindfulness meditation as a top priority and loving kindness as the next one. And then, of course, there's all these other teachings on the Eightfold Path that someone would need to learn, reflect, and practice in order to really move the mind to enlightenment. It's not just meditation that's going to transform the mind. There's all these other teachings that one would need to learn and practice in order to get to enlightenment. And that's what this group learning program is about. And we're restarting on the 6th of April. And then we're going to progress chapter by chapter each Sunday in this book, Developing a Life Practice, The Path That Leads to Enlightenment. We're going to be starting out with a three-part series on the Eightfold Path, which is going to give you an overview, an in-depth understanding of the Eightfold Path. And then once we're done with that on our Sundays, we're going to move right into chapter one and start teaching you from there forward. So if you don't have a copy of this yet, you can download it, you can print it, you can order a printed copy or a Kindle version, and you can start reading in the book as that's going to be really helpful. So be sure you start at the very beginning with the preface, because even in the preface, it has some content in there that's going to help you to develop your life practice towards the attainment of enlightenment. Next week on Wednesday, we're going to be doing just breathing mindfulness meditation together as our last breathing mindfulness meditation is part of this particular iteration of the program. It'll just be opening up to any questions you guys have and doing meditation together. So any kind of discussion that you guys would like to have. And then on Sunday, this Sunday coming up, we're going to be doing all the content towards the back of this book 
related to the frequently asked questions. There's about 11 of those there, and I'm going to be covering all of those. And there's a content in the back of the book about how to determine if you're actually enlightened, because that's something that you might be interested to know how to do at some point. So I cover that in the back of the book as additional content, and I'll be covering that as part of this class on this Sunday coming up. So I'll see you guys either on Sunday or Wednesday, maybe both of those times. Have a very lovely rest of your day. We'll see you in a future class. Take care. Sawadee Thank you for listening to this podcast. To provide support for this podcast, visit patreon.com forward slash support Buddha. To access more teachings, visit buddhadailywisdom.com. There, you will discover a full range of courses, retreats, and online resources to assist you on the path to enlightenment. Remember to establish a daily, consistent meditation practice, along with learning and practicing these teachings. A well-developed meditation practice is the foundation in which to train the mind to attain enlightenment.